This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook, and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello and welcome this week to Talking Flutes Extra with me, Jean-Paul Wright. Coming up is a pre-record that I did with the fantastic flute player, composer, author, teacher and genuine good egg, Stephen Clark, back in July. But it's the beginning of November and the world has changed. As I sit here on the Friday the 6th of November, we still do not know who the President of the USA is. Yet when this goes out on the Monday, we will. In England, we've just entered lockdown for another month. And in Scotland and in Wales, other parts of the UK, they have a very different system, a tiered system. So just to bring you up to date with where we are now, I'm just going to call Steam Clark on his mobile as a precursor to this fantastic podcast coming up. So here we go. Doesn't appear he's in. Come in, Stephen Clark. Stephen Clark, this is London calling. London calling. <laughs> this is great. This is great. Well, in his defence, he actually doesn't know I'm calling him. Oh, hello. Blimey, Stephen. Hello. I can. How are you doing? <laughs> Oh, it's sorry to bother you. And on a Friday, you're never bothering me. You're never bothering me. <laughs> it's just a very quick one because we recorded back in July, I think it was, the podcast to go out at the beginning of November, and yeah, uh, uh, the world. When we last spoke, we were coming out of the first lockdown, and you were in Manchester, and I think you were just happy to get a bit of air. You were obviously concerned that your your diary was emptying. And But we could see something, you know, we had a lovely weather and you were doing quite a lot of online stuff that will be coming up and discussing in the podcast. However, on the 6th of November, as we speak now, with the podcast going out on Monday, the world has suddenly gone in a, in a different direction. We don't know yeah. who the President of the United States is as we speak now, but we will on Monday. And we're locked down in, the, in England for the next four weeks uh, Scotland has a, the tiered system, and mm-hmm. so does Wales. And you have, before lockdown uh, happened, you decided to go back home, which is a very, very sensible thing. I did. It was a, it was a kind of um, spur of the minute decision. My my mum called me when the um, when the prime minister announced that the UK was locking down because we got a few days' notice. He was kind of like, we must lock down immediately, starting next week. <laughs> <You know? Yes. laughs> it was one of these situations. So um, my mum called me and said, look, come up to Scotland. Come up here because we're not going into the same lockdown. So, And I didn't really want to do it because, you know, I wanted to be at home. But then um, I thought about it. And I had, I had a recording uh, booked in on, what day was that? When did lockdown start? Wednesday, I think. No, Tuesday. So um, 
I finished the recording and at about six o'clock at night, I just got in the car. I thought, you know what, she's right. Got in the car and I drove up to uh, Scotland and got there just about two hours before the midnight um, lockdown started. So, um, and you know, it's the right decision because first of all, I'm staying with my family and I always love seeing them because I don't get to see them so often, especially when, you know, I was traveling so much with work. But, you know, my mom is doing my washing for me. She's been <laughs> cooking for me. And one of the best things for me is the gyms are still open in Scotland. And I've yes. been really like on this huge, um, I took up swimming over lockdown and I've been really swimming really hard and I didn't want to have a whole month of not being able to swim. So um, I've been able to come and swim every day up here, which is great. So it sounds silly, but, you know, in lockdown, little silly things like that are, are what kind of gets you through it um so because i live right in the city in manchester in an apartment you know i don't have outdoor space really i've got a little tiny balcony but it's not really the same thing so um i didn't want to have another month stuck inside doing that uh and also the beauty of being at my uh, family home in scotland is i can practice a lot later because in manchester when everyone's working from home during lockdown i try not to practice past five o'clock as i spoke to you about because it drives my neighbors nuts so up here i can practice till whenever i want um, so it actually was the right decision. But of course, it's frustrating that we're back into lockdown because we just get these glimmer of hopes about potential work and things maybe allowing themselves to go back a little bit to normal, not quite normal, but, you know, some kind of live performance. And then, of course, that's snatched away from us again. So um, I know lots of my colleagues are just as frustrated as I am. But at the end of the day, maybe this is an important thing so that we can all spend Christmas with our families, you know, to get it out of the way now. Yeah, you've got a couple of things coming up. Is your uh, Instagram live, is that all sold out, your Zoom? Oh, my um, my Flute Gym Live classes? Yes. No, no. Um, I've actually extended the – last time I limited the slots to 15. This time I'm going to unlimit them, if you know what I mean, yes. because a lot of people were disappointed. Um, but also I've introduced a whole load of bundle bookings, which have been so popular. So I didn't do this last time. It was maybe a mistake where, you know, if people book – want to book in all of them they get discounts and stuff like this so that's proved really popular so i'm just leaving them open they begin the first one is on the 14th saturday the 14th and then there's one class every saturday for three weeks so the first one is all on sonority the second one is on building scale method that's quick and efficient and the third one is about how to get confident and comfortable with extremes of the flute i call it extreme sports you know playing Mm. really high and playing really low and having confidence and understanding of how to do that and these classes actually are open to everyone it's not just for professionals it's from people who you know are just starting out learning the flute as a as a young player or as an amateur, right through to professional players and teachers and performers. And I get a real mix in the class, actually. And they're really good fun. I, I really This is the third set, the third lot of sessions I'm doing. Every time we lock down, I do a lot of sessions because people ask for them. But um, they've always been a good laugh. And I also, I've done a new thing this time where I've set up a specific Facebook group for everybody that's taking part um, in the last sessions and the new sessions. And it's private just for these people. But it means I can further share exercises and my practicing and we can kind of have a bit of a community discussion about how things are going. So um, just to give a people a bit of inspiration and support and also some goals to work for in these very strange times. And also something for me, you know, I enjoy it. It's a lot of work for me planning these classes because I essentially write completely new exercises for them. But it gives me a good goal and a good um, a good project to work on as well. Well, this is absolutely phenomenal and it starts next week. So how do people, if they haven't heard about it already, how do they find up, sign up, find up? Uh, how do they find out and sign up? The, the, the booking, um, it's all done 
uh, through my website. So it's it's quite high tech, actually. You know, like you'd almost think I know what I'm doing with technology when you see how it's done. But luckily, my website hosting company thing have a great, um, a great kind of platform to do this. So if you go to stephenclarkflute.com and then click on the Flute Gym Live bookings. Is that what I call it? The Flute Gym Live booking? Yes, or something it is. like that. You, you'll know the one. I see, you'll see it when you get there. And then you, everything is just presented there and you just select what classes you want. And you can choose to do the bundles and then it automatically uh, takes you to PayPal and everything. So it's very easy. Um, and then it also generates all the automatic joining emails and everything for you. And um, of course, you can see this lots on my Instagram as well. I talk about it a lot in my stories and the odd post. Uh, and you can even click the link on my Instagram. But the easiest way is just to go straight to my website, which is stephenclarkflute.com, and you'll see the the booking information right there. And classes are really filling up, so it's going to be a lot of fun, I think. I'm looking forward to it. Well, any class with you is a lot of fun. So, uh, Oh, thanks, JP. Sign up. Everyone that's listening, sign up. You will not regret it, because if you've seen Stephen's book, The Flute Gym, and if you haven't, where have you been? <laughs> it, it is for everybody, and the, everything is interlinked. So go and take a look at his website. And, yeah, you uh, don't actually have to have the book to do the classes. That's the the kind of the beauty behind it. That was a really important thing for me. That if you have the book, you'll be familiar with my concepts and my way of playing and practicing. But you don't actually need the book to be able to take part in the classes. Um, although if you do have it, you know, like it goes hand in hand. It's kind of an extent. The classes are almost an extension on the book, but also stand independent. So um, it's been quite a fun project to make it work. And actually all the classes may eventually turn into some kind of interactive book of some kind because I have so much material from them now. Mm. Um, so we shall see in the future what happens there. So come on, listeners, you have no excuse at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for this precursor and updated chat. As we begin this in a couple of moments' time to go into the podcast, which was recorded last July, yeah, things things in the world have changed and people will notice that as we're ch- chatting away because... It was very hot when we were chatting last. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the one thing I just want to say, which is I'm, I'm always very concerned that, you know, musicians get a bit depressed about the current situation. But believe it or not, yesterday I got a booking, a concert booking, and I couldn't believe it for March 2021. So um, yes. that is a glimmer of hope. We shall see if it remains. It was a Mozart concerto in New York, which would be lovely to do because um, obviously I've been off work now for quite some time. But um, I think for musicians listening, you know, there is still glimmers of hope out there. Don't give up yet. You know, we can we can still come back. I'm confident. Stephen, thank you very much. I'm sorry for bugging you this morning. You're never bugging me, JP. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. And I thank you so much for all your support. I know you support loads of flute players and musicians around the world, including me. And we're all incredibly grateful because you're a lovely person and you're, we love working with TJ. And just the fact that you even take the time to update your podcast is separate you into a loop of your own, I think. Oh, you're making me quite embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, here is the podcast recorded with Stephen last July. Hope you enjoy. Back by popular demand. Come on, how much did he pay them? It's a genuinely lovely guy, fabulous flute player, author, and a very clever chap to boot. So I should really dislike him intensely. However... I'll put on my many jealousies aside to give a very warm Talking Flutes podcast. Welcome back to the one and only Stephen Clark. Good morning, Stephen. Hi, JP. That was the most flattering introduction I think I've ever heard in my life. You're very kind. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, it's all true, really, isn't it? Fabulous flute player, oh author, God, no. and a very clever chap to boot. So, really, I'm not it's... sure if my students would um, would echo your sentiments, but thank you very much. I'm I'm chuffed that you think so. Oh, I'm sure your students love you. Are you a are you a bit of a taskmaster? Um, kind of, but I am quite. I mean, I don't teach very much. Uh, certainly, before the whole COVID thing, I only taught like maybe three students, and I would see them once a month. I've been doing a bit more online teaching, actually quite a lot of online teaching. So I kind of had to change my teaching mentality slightly. But with my students, like my real students, if you like, yeah, I am a bit of a taskmaster, but I also tell them I'll never ask them to do anything I don't think they're capable of, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. And um, I'm very lucky, actually, that they're all incredibly hardworking and incredibly dedicated. And because I only see them once a month, they kind of would have to be, I think, and very self-motivated. So... Although I maybe like don't tell them this, they're actually really good students to teach. Like I enjoy it and I learn a lot from them, but I would never tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a sign of a good teacher though. Always wanting to learn and get free, sort of that, that feedback, the subliminal feedback from the student because you pick up. It's interesting because they all have very different strengths and weaknesses. And I mean, maybe this interests me more than... Maybe it sounds a bit silly because I know there's lots of really skilled teachers that will listen to this who have lots of students and are very experienced. Because I'm mainly playing the flute and I'm constantly thinking about my own playing, uh, it's different when you teach, of course, because their strengths and weaknesses are not necessarily the same as mine. But what I think has helped me in developing in my teaching style is that I have pretty much had like every fundamental issue in flute playing there is going, you know, so I've had to solve a lot of things, which is really helpful as a teacher when you know you want to work on these like chronic problems with students and help them kind of take their playing to the next level but they're all very unique and individual and that's what I really enjoy about it and when we have like a group class for example they all kind of learn from each other and try and you know we'll talk a lot about what highlights and what strengths we all have and what weaknesses we have and we really try and I really encourage them to try and learn from each other and they all get on great two of them are brothers of course as well so that really helps um so it's a really interesting setup and I like it and I think because I'm flying in to do the day's teaching, they kind of appreciate it as well because they know I'm not just like rolling out of bed and jumping in the car. <laughs> well, th- this say uh, this is a summer holiday pre-record for. Oh, and... of course, sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> I no, it's just been aware of it. Uh, yeah, no, that's fine. And the only reason I'm saying that is because uh, here in the UK, where where Scotland's coming out at a very different time to in England. Um, but how have you coped with the COVID lockdown and the change to your work and performing schedule? Because it really has hit the performing arts badly. I mean, my life has changed in every respect. Um, and I, I mean, that's not me being dramatic, and that applies to loads and loads of people around the world. But of course, musicians, I think, can all relate to this. So I do not have a single live concert in my diary for the first time in 10 years. I mean, I've gone from like 150 concerts a year down to zero. Everything is just cancelled. There's never a day that goes by that I don't get a cancellation email. A couple of them are moving to online situations, which is fine. Um, Obviously, the fee is cut drastically as well. I mean, it's almost like, you know, what's the point with the fee? But you just kind of do it because you want to play. But it's been an interesting thing because... I. I've really had to learn about how to record stuff and how to um, kind of use this this home recording setup and and kind of get your message and your playing and your teaching out there. It's been it's been incredibly challenging and actually teaching online is tiring, really tiring because you can't teach in the same way. 
um, when you're standing right beside someone, it's, it's so much easier to to explain what to do and to notice things and, and change things. It's very hard to do this online. In terms of playing, the, the only good thing about it, I guess, is it's given me an opportunity to do repertoire that I've never really done before that I've wanted to do. For example, because I'm a flute player, all these recitals that went online, there was maybe like six or seven of them, which isn't so much, but it's still six or seven more than zero. They've all become solo flute recitals, you know, which is an hour and a half of solo flute is tough going just stamina wise, but also just to like come up with interesting things for people to listen to, especially listening through a computer. So I, I really had to be quite thoughtful about what I was programming much more so than what I would do in real life. Because in real life, of course, when you're playing flute and piano recitals, you want to choose stuff that the audience like, but you always want you also want to choose stuff that you like and your colleague likes and you know that you're comfortable playing. So it's been a little different with solo flute repertoire. But it's a bit it's a bit strange, isn't it, standing in front of a camera that is pointing at you and you're playing away, not being able to see the audience or feel anything coming back. In fact, wondering actually if anyone is there. Whereas yeah, in an it's or- really strange. And, and you'll say, yeah, but if you're playing in the TV studio, you're, you're still playing in front of a camera and you've got a microphone, but you still yeah. have crew there. So you have people yeah. there. When you're doing your online recitals, there is nobody apart from a camera. So how do and you also, keep that going? Well, also, the, you, you know, the sound quality isn't always a true reflection of you as well. <laughs> yes. I mean, you can. Ha- I, ha- I bought myself some a couple of good microphones at the beginning of all this and learned a little bit how to use them. And it's definitely improved the quality of the recording I can put out or the the live stream I can put out. But it's definitely not the same as a a real concert. You actually, what I've learned is you get away with murder in a real concert. <laughs> <laughs> People, all the little intonation moments and things like that. Nobody notices when they're live. I mean, maybe some do, but the majority don't notice when you're live. And then, of course, if I record some concerts, I'll listen back and I'll be like, oh, that's an interesting little moment there. But nobody noticed at the time. When you're doing it on the internet, it's different because I would say the majority of these recitals, maybe about half of them, they wanted them pre-recorded. And then the, the rest, you know, you just do as a live stream. I think at first people were going with the live stream because they thought, let's keep music live and let's try and recreate the concert situation. But now I think a lot of these festivals and things are realizing that actually causes a lot of complications and it's a risk because you're only as strong as your technology allows so to pre-record the concerts is a safer option and maybe in some way gives a bit a better result and they can brand it that way and you know they can stick their logos on the screen and all this kind of stuff as well so that's quite a challenge because although you're recording it in advance it's got to be done in one go just like a concert you know you can't stop and start between pieces or if something doesn't go very well you can't then you know press stop restart that movement or something and what's so frustrating is you know you might play an hour's concert and you get to like minute 54 and then you do something real bad and you like screw up and then you have this decision like do i keep going or do i just restart the whole hour again and most of the time you restart the whole hour again so actually what is an hour's concert sometimes takes you about 12 hours to record because you do so many different versions on it and interestingly as soon as that red button is going, you know, as soon as the red light is flashing, whether it's live or it's just going out for a recording, th- I do feel stressed. I do feel anxiety and concert nerves and I can feel like the tension in my body. It's an interesting experience. So it's good in some respects. I feel like I'm still practicing real life playing. It's maybe a bit more stressful, as you say, because it feels a bit weird without an audience there. But I've slowly just got kind of a little bit used to it. And I mean, I am craving 
real concerts, you know, really missing it, actually. And I will never moan again about crappy airport travel and all this kind of stuff. I'm ready. I'm ready to go back and fight with the conductor. And, you know, like, <laughs> I'm ready for this. Let's touch on one area that uh, I noticed on your social media a few weeks ago is that you're, we all, we've all got love for sheet music because you open a, a really old score and it smells, doesn't it? It depends. I mean, I've, oh, got, yeah. I've, I've got a Nielsen copy that Jim Dower gave me probably 30 years ago. Um, and it's got coffee stain on it in the wrong place. But, um, <laughs> you know, you open it up and it has this smell. And an old, if you've got the, the old T&G stuff or old Moise books, yeah. uh, Leduc Publishing, there is there's a smell to them. But more and more people are moving to uh, apps or having their sheet music actually on their iPads. And, yeah, digital. Uh, for someone like you who was a real sheet musicoid, you've made the transition, haven't you? I have. And it was quite, a, I mean, this transition didn't, well, it did happen very quickly, but it was something that was on my mind for maybe three years, actually. Because, you know, when I was a kid, and um, I would get my pocket money, which wasn't so much. Or, and then, you know, like when I was 15, I got my first job, which was illegal, but I was working as a waiter. I was working in a vet surgery, cleaning out the poop from the cages. And then at 16, I got a waiter job. So I was always working. And all through college, I was teaching and playing with my quintet and earning a bit of money. And then I would work in French Connection, the clothing store at the weekend and stuff. You know, I was always like saving and saving and saving. And every penny of money I went on from about 14 years old bought sheet music so i actually have at 36 quite a massive collection of sheet music in fact i built a library to hold it because it is enormous um and i really pride myself on my sheet music library and it's all categorized into like concertos flute and piano studies um you know chamber music all this thing and then alphabeticalized as well so whenever like students would come in they would like literally spend ages going through my sheet music can take what they want, and that's fine. And, of course, so much of it I've now lost to loaning to people. Even though everything has a little stamp that says belongs to me, they still don't give it back. And, actually, I had a situation where I was looking for a copy of my Bohm Caprices a while ago, and I couldn't find them. And I thought, I bet a student has one of these. And I called them all, and they said, no, none of us have it. And then um, I ordered a, a new copy and was playing off that for a few months. And then I went and gave a lesson to somebody, and they – pulled out my copy of my old bone caprices <laughs> and i was like this is my book anyway i just left it with them because i'd already bought a new one but so I, I was really into sheet music and i really like love playing off the page although i play almost everything from memory so i wouldn't have in concert the sheet music there but i definitely like to have nice sheet music and i look after it and things but so the problem was i was going away a lot i'm some i'm away so much of the time when life is normal and um you can only take so much music with you, you know, because you're taking, you want to take the repertoire you've actually got to perform just in case you want to look at it or practice it or whatever. But also I like to take some study books and maybe T&G or something. But I would always think, oh, I wish I had such and such a thing with me. And I'd be calling friends going, hey, can you scan something for me and send it to me? And most of the time they would. And I was playing off my iPad, you know, just to practice these little studies occasionally. Um, I hated it. It was really annoying. But then a couple of my friends were really transitioning to iPad and they all play off iPad Pro, you know, the bigger screen. Um, and I didn't have that. I had the smaller screen. And they had these little pedals that you could turn the page and they bought the Apple Pencil. So it automatically allows you to write on the screen. with. And I mean, I know you can do it with your finger, but it's, it really feels like a real pencil because of the way the, the little nib on it is. And you don't have to select like drawing mode, it just automatically recognizes the pencil. And even if you lean on it with your hand, it doesn't 
it doesn't put that, it knows that that's your hand. It's very clever. And so I was watching them do this and I thought, you know what? I quite fancy that, but they're very expensive. And then about a month ago, my iPad just completely died. I mean, I'd had it a long time. It just wouldn't switch on anymore. So I went to get it repaired and the company said, you know what? I think this would cost you like £300 to repair what the problem is. You may as well just get a new one. So I thought, fair enough. So I went and bought an iPad Pro and I love it for reading digital music because the size really does matter. It makes such a difference. The iPad Pro screen is literally the exact same size as a regular piece of A4 music. So it doesn't feel like you're peering at the page. In fact, I forget it's even an iPad. Um, and then I got myself the little pencil, and I don't write huge amounts on my music anyway. But uh, And then the little pedal, and honestly, it's amazing. And then I had all these recording projects to do in lockdown where I'd made these arrangements of Star Wars quartets and Harry Potter quartets and the Avengers quartet, and they're really, really difficult to play. Um, I wrote them like in a really challenging way for the player. We didn't cut any of the orchestral craziness out. And so I had to record all these parts, you know, to, to make the, the video of them. And I had pages flying around the room when I was trying to do these. And I did the first one, which was Harry Potter, and it was a nightmare. And I thought, do you know what? This would be so much easier on iPad so I don't have to turn the page because it goes so fast. And it made it so much better. So now the truth is, with the exception of the odd book and my own book and things, I'm, I've not touched a piece of real music in a month. It's all been off iPad. So are you scanning, going th- a process of scanning through your old music? Or what are you doing? Yeah, Pretty much. So I'm not like going through everything and scanning it all in one go. I just kind of do it as I need it. So there's an app I'm using called Fourscore, which is okay. I know it's really popular. I don't think it's amazing. I think it's a little bit overcomplicated for what it is. But it does have quite a good function of scanning the sheet music. So it uses the camera and it crops it all. You can edit it manually if you want. The problem I have with Fourscore is I don't like the way their filing system is a bit of a pain in the butt. You have to really spend too much time filing things and I like everything really organized so I've made like folders for studies folders for solo rep folders for mm-hmm. flute and piano for concertos for violin transcriptions you know it's all there so that's a bit of a pain but yeah you, you, I do that so if there's a book or a piece that I'm looking for I'll just scan it at that moment and then it's on the iPad and slowly over time I'll build up the whole library but um, also IMSLP or literally anything online that you download, you can save it as a PDF straight to the iPad and you don't even need to print it or take photos or anything. So like with some studies and things, even though I own the real book, like the Bone Caprices, for example, I've gone on IMSLP and just downloaded their version as well, just to save me scanning them all in. And then I just, they've always got a crazy kind of code as a title. So I just delete it and rename it as Bone Caprices. So it maybe takes a minute for every piece. And just over time, you get quicker at it. And then slowly your library on your iPad will build up and build up. But honestly, if I was to go back on tour tomorrow, I wouldn't take a single piece of music with me. I would just take the iPad. Wouldn't you need a pretty uh, heavy-duty music stand, though, wouldn't you, to cope with the weight? The weight of my iPad? Yeah. Oh, it just sits on my regular music stand without any problems. And it actually, it's on it right now. And it's also got about, it's got my book, which is quite fat, and it's got about the French book, and it's got a couple of books that I'm editing for a couple of companies at the moment. So no, I don't think it. It's probably about the same weight as, like, maybe the ta- the the um, T and G method. You know, like the hardback. Oh, yeah. oh crikey! It's not really that heavy, but you can get these um, like special music stands for the iPad. You know, where it it kind of clips onto the iPad. I saw Emmanuel Pahu playing the Cacciatore Concerto using one, and he just had his pedal and he just 
the pedal and he's quite graceful the way he is on stage he's a bit like a ballet dancer when I do it it's like hair develop <laughs> you actually really have to practice the page turn with the pedal it looks so effortless and it's not in the heat of the moment when you've got 300,000 notes on the page and you're trying to turn it with your foot you have to really practice the coordination of that it took me a while so is there a special program that you have to go in to actually turn the sheet music no, because the pedals are Bluetooth, so it's just designed to, to do. so these like these music reader apps like Fourscore or any PDF reader, mm-hmm. they all um they all know that Bluetooth people are using these pedals and it's just completely designed to do it automatically. So I had I don't have to do anything. I switched my pedal on and I connected it for the first time I used it, you know, paired it up with the Bluetooth and that was it. I've never done it again. And in fact, I don't even switch the pedal off because it if it doesn't get touched in thirty minutes or something, it automatically goes to sleep. So I just it just sits there by my music stand, and whenever I start to practice, I just touch it once, and it switches itself back on. And I've now had it about a month, and I've never once charged it, so it's lasted a long time. And it's very clever, actually. I mean, this pedal was like, there was some that were going so expensive on Amazon. This one was like £12 or something. I bought the cheapest one. But it's clever because it has three lights, red, green, and orange, which are the battery indications. So um, you know when it's time to charge it. I'll have to invest in one because I subscribe to Encoder, the sheet music. Um, yeah, I remember you telling me about and, this. And um, I'm, I'm, I have to sort of physically touch the screen to move the sheet music down on my iPad. So I'm going to have to invest in a pedal. I'm just being lazy, I, mean, I think. Well, I was, I was a bit like you. It just kind of, I just thought, oh, so many things can go wrong. And I really like the page. But I think the size of the screen makes a huge difference. So if people are considering it and you're looking for a new iPad, for example, my best advice is don't buy the smaller one. Spend the extra couple hundred dollars whatever to go for the bigger one because it feels so much more natural to me but also i think like everything in life it is probably what's going to happen eventually as things will go digital um you know because i wrote this book and i want to make my book digital in some format but i'm having some slight complications in how i protect it once it's digital because i don't want everyone getting free so that's what's slowing it down but i put a poll out on instagram asking do people use digital and if they would would they like things in digital and still the majority want paper I mean, overwhelmingly, it was like 60% to 70% want paper. But having said that, recently, music publishers, a well-known music publishers, approached me and asked me to edit a new um, like piece of collection of pieces book, if you know what I mean, kind of like the French book, but slightly yeah. different. And they want me to edit it for them. And I'm working on that now, well, hopefully. But um, they, there was big discussions about, including me, about how we go forward and the digitalized version and, they were kind of just wanting to do, I mean, I can't say too much, probably, but they were really into the digital, but in a slightly more complicated way than you imagine. Um, and it was interesting to me because I'm quite resistant to digital, but I think that is the way the world's going to go. It's just about getting familiar with it. Yeah, but I mean, if you look at um, Simon Rattle, he's really into that encoder stuff. I mean, there's, there's orchestras doing orchestral concerts now digitally, aren't there? So it's, yeah. it is... Uh, I, I personally think it's the way to go. And it's a wonderful, actually very good segue into the reason we're going to have this chat, Stephen. Okay. The book. The book. The book. The book. <laughs> the, the flute gym. The flutey gym. Yes, the flute gym. Yeah. It's been doing really well, hasn't it, since you published it? Has it has been. I'm chuffed. I'm really chuffed. I think we're on edition three now, uh, third edition. And so it's now got a um, worldwide distribution deal on it. So I don't have to deal too much with it anymore, which is nice. And yeah, I'm, 
you know, I'm genuinely proud of the book. It, it still makes me nervous when, you know, new printing runs are being done and stuff. And I think, what happens if people don't like it? But then I'm getting messages from people every day going, oh, I really am enjoying the book. And you know when, like, the, the famous blue players write to you? And I'm like, how have you got my book? And they're like, and actually one said to me, who's a really well-known blue player, said he thinks it's the best blue book ever written. And I honestly cried. <laughs> I had a tear because I was like, <laughs> oh, sweet. It's just such a lovely thing to hear because it was so much work. And it, it's just so overwhelming sometimes. And, you know, I'm doing, I did this funny thing where, you know, because I want to promote the book constantly, but I also don't want to bore people to death. So I kind of find these like funny ways to, to talk about the book. So I, I did like story time with Stephen and I was reading all these books and then I turned it into like a church service and then president, I got President Trump, like a fake President Trump to do and, and all these funny things. And sometimes I'm reading bits from my book and it honestly doesn't even feel like mine. You know, I feel like I'm reading someone else's book because I think it's quite good information. And I don't always believe that I've got good information when I'm talking. So I'm really chuffed with the book. And, you know, it, it came at a good time because it was my income, essentially, through lockdown and things like this. So it, it's a good book and it's there forever. And I'm really proud of it. And I'm considering a second one. Um, but I don't know if I have the energy at the moment to do it. But this book, especially for flute players, is uh, it condenses everything down that you need to know to yeah, I re- think so. really get you back into well, or even to maintain yourself as a player. You know, there's so many ways you can use it. I use it, and, I mean, I do use it, that's the truth, because it is all the exercises I practice. But I use it and I kind of, I dip in and out of it and I do yeah. little bits of things all constantly. There are other people who are using it like a daily method and it works fine. But the thing that's amazed me, just, and you've got to remember, I'm probably the worst person to talk to about my own book because I'm so emotionally invested in it. You know, I, I struggle to look at it purely from a flute player's perspective. But all these flute players I'm, are using it and some of them are like really advanced professional players and others are really right at the start of their flute learning process and they're all getting different things out of the book and I think that actually makes it quite unique because it, it's so fundamental but in a in quite a serious but quick way of learning so there's no messing about you know like and this is what I like to do in my own practice and deliberately how I wrote it that you know, this is what you need to do. This is what you're trying to achieve. And here's how you're going to do it. And you can literally apply that from your first week of playing the flute or, you know, sitting as a major player in a major orchestra. And I really do think that. And I'm really proud of that, actually. And I use it every day for my own practice. And I'm constantly trying to make progress in my own playing. And in a weird way, I use my own boot for that a lot of the time. Well, I think I said to you, because I dip in and dip out every day. Um, and there's I think I mentioned that there's so many different nuances that I find quite annoying because um, it, it, it finds the holes in my playing. And I think about flexibility <laughs> is classic. And, uh, yeah. and I, can, I, I can hide most of the time. And then your little, your little section on flexibility is if you listen to yourself and really sort of take note in what you're saying, it's completely annoying because you're finding and hearing all the holes. Yes, this is true. But, you know, yesterday I had to record a video for the British Flute Society. They asked me to record a warm-up video. They send out these warm-up videos every Wednesday, I think, and they're asking various people to make them. So they asked me to make a warm-up video. And I didn't really prepare like usual. I didn't plan too much. And so I switched the camera on and I thought, because every day for me is slightly different with my flute playing, as I've spoken to you about before. So I, I played like for five minutes and then I decided to talk about what I was going to do to warm up that day. And I talked about the book and I said, I know lots of you will have this book and there's a whole chapter about warming up in there. 
we're not going to do that today because you, you've already got it. Let's do something else in the warm-up. And I, I spoke a bit, but what I, I said, and as I was saying it, I was like, oh, this is good advice, Stephen, remember this. It was that, you know, this, there's lots of different compartments to playing the flute for me. For example, you've got performance, you've got rehearsal, you've got practicing. You've also got just like noodling around for fun, you know. And these are all very different things. And I treat them as very different things. For example, a concert is not practice. Rehearsal is not practice. Just messing around, which is really important, by the way, just to mess around and have fun. Absolutely. But it's not practice. And so practice to me is private. It's completely private. You know, if I know somebody's listening in the next room, I don't enjoy practicing. I want to be completely alone, totally able to make as terrible a sound as I need to make in that moment, you know? And so I think it's important to look at the flute gym in that way. This is for personal, private practice. And as you say, it is going to find the holes in your playing, but not just your playing and everybody's playing, because these are the difficult things about playing the flute. You know, everybody finds playing high and quietly difficult and low and loud, difficult and moving enormous intervals, difficult and articulating in a certain way. These are difficult things. And it's the difficult things we must practice. When time is limited, there's no point in practicing the things we can already do because it's just self-gratification. I want to practice the things that are tough so that when I finish my, my personal private practice that day, I'm better than I was when I started. Yeah, it's almost marginal gains, isn't it? Don't, only Absolutely. Do, only, don't just do the stuff you're good at, but aim to get 1% better each day on the areas of weakness. But this is what makes the best conductors the best conductors, actually. Because, it, you know, like, orchestras most of the time have played these things over and over again for years and years. They know how to play, you know, Shostakovich 5. But there are some difficult corners in that. And there are certain conductors that come in and just bang through it and play through it and hope for the best, and that's fine. But there are others who use their time so wisely. They know the bits the orchestra can already do, um, which is most of it usually. But they know the bits that are challenging, and they'll spend their time on those bits. And it means that the players don't get bored and unmotivated. And it means that the, the bits that are tricky are incredibly organized and tidy in the concert. And also, there's still an element of excitement to the whole performance because they haven't, you know, over-rehearsed anything. Um, and I think that's a really good lesson from these great conductors is to do the difficult bits because then when it really matters, you're in control. Well... I would imagine there's very few people listening to this podcast that haven't heard or know about the flute gym. Uh, for those that may not have, and I'm going to throw you in the deep end, Stephen. Okay. And say, um, I know we're doing this through FaceTime audio, and it's feeding yeah. through my, my mixing desk into my laptop. But I'm going to wonder, could you get your flute out? And we yeah, can have I a... <laughs> and because there are... Ten chapters, it's very specifically written. Uh, chapter one, warming up. Chapter two, power and projection. Chapter three, breathing. Chapter four, focus. Chapter five, flexibility. Chapter six, <coughs> scales. Chapter seven, support. Chapter eight, articulation. Chapter nine, control. Chapter ten, intonation and outtonation. Very clever play on words. Um, and then you've got a quick guide to harmonic singing and playing and then you've got final thoughts now I'm a scaloid so we won't talk about scales because I just love scales but which one of those uh, bearing in mind this is an audio podcast and the feed is coming in through your iPad through a desk mm -hmm. <laughs> which one should we uh, look at um, you know let's look at intonation because I, I want to explain some thoughts about this go on um, 
I'm not really a lover of a tuning machine. You know, I, I, JPA, as you know, I listen to all the Talking Flizz podcasts, am I right? <laughs> yeah. And I think they're amazing, and I've thanked you so many times for doing them because there's such a lot of information for a lot of people. And I was listening to you talk with Paul Evan Davis the other <laughs> he day. He hates him, doesn't he? He does. And, you know, Paul and I agree. I had some great lessons of Paul. He's one of my favorite flute players on the planet. He's not just a great musician. He's also such a sweet, lovely man. But... um. I am so inspired by him. However, I'm also at a stage in my own flute playing life where I try to have my own thoughts about mm. things. And, you know, and that's difficult sometimes when you, the, your heroes are saying opposite. Paul said he doesn't like tuning machines. Now, I'm, I don't really use a tuning machine very often, if ever. He also said he doesn't like metronomes. Now, I use my metronome like a Trojan. <laughs> so in some ways, I don't echo his sentiment with the metronome. But I, also, I don't play like Paul. He is a wizard on the flute. But... um. I, I don't really use the tuning machine, but what I do use is the drone machine in the tuning machine. Yes, I saw this on social media the other day. You showed people how to use it. Yeah, it's a really useful thing. And I use it for all kinds of things, like I improvise on top of it. But actually, this is how I'll practice tuning. Because, you know, tuning is not as simple as just playing in tune. It's about the colour and adapting and being flexible in that precise moment so that what the audience hear is perfect or as close to perfect as you can get it and i had a teacher at college a chamber music coach who was a clarinetist who used to talk a lot about creating an oral illusion and i think with intonation you have to do this a lot of the time and it's it's impossible to do this just standing on your own playing but having the drone is really useful so this is where intonation and outtonation came from so i wrote this little melody in the book which i'll play for you i mean you can literally write any melody you like uh, and just kind of come up with your own version but uh, in this one, I'll just play the, the, the melody that's in the book. And so for every line, every little sequence of the melody, when it changes key, it tells you what drone to set it to. So it starts with uh, a drone in F because it's an F major. So I'm going to use my phone to play the drone. So tell me if you can hear this. Can you hear that? I can hear that, yep. Okay, I hope that doesn't deafen people. So um, there, that's an F. So the first thing I'm going to do, just grab my flip, is tune to the F because I want to be in tune to start or close to being in tune. Okay, pretty close. Pretty close. That'll do it for now, so I don't take up all your time. I'm just going to put it one octave higher so you can hear it a bit better. So when I play this melody, there's a whole load of notes that are F, so I will hear those Fs matching perfectly. That's what I'm going for. Um, there are also some Cs and some octave Fs above and all kinds of things. So I'll hear the intervals of the fifth, the octave, the third, all these things. And they all have a special sound that you have to create. So rather than just playing this with a tuning machine, playing it with a drone... It teaches you where you need to be flexible in your own intonation and scale of the flute, but it also trains your ear at the same time. So I think there's a much more benefit to doing it this way. So I'll show you what I mean. I'll try my best to pick, play it in tune as well. Actually, let me stop and just say one thing. So the first notes I have is C, F, F, and that F should match. If it doesn't match, if it's not in tune, you will definitely hear it. I hope you can hear it over the call, but in real life you will hear it. This time I'll play the F deliberately out of tune so you can hear the clash with the drone. Can you hear the difference? Absolutely. Yeah, so these are just little moments. So I'll, this time I'll play a bit longer, but I'll play it in tune so you can hear. 
Here comes an octave F coming, so it should match. And so on. Now, that's the intonation version. Outonation is a word I made up, but the point of it essentially is, you know those moments when you're playing and you're maybe not in tune in terms of like completely matched perfectly with the A at the beginning, but you still have to make it sound in tune because we know as flute players, and I talk about this, that just because your A is in tune with the piano or the O, it does not mean everything else is going to be in tune because our flutes are not perfect, our playing is not perfect, and also intonation is completely flexible and constantly changing all the time with the, according to what people are playing around you. So how do we deal with those moments when... Things aren't easy to get in tune, but we have to make sure it's, you know, we're creating this oral illusion. So something I quite like to do is play the exact same exercise again, but instead of starting in tune, if you like, I'm going to start out of tune. But then I'm going to adjust with my embouchure and with everything that I used to play to fool the listener into thinking I'm in tune. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So if I listen to this F again, and then I'm going to pull my head joint right out, like huge amount out, so it's very, very flat, so you'll hear the difference. So I'm nowhere near in tune. So now I've got to lift this up to try and make it sound in tune. If I just play it where it comes out naturally without adjusting, it will sound like this. Which is horrible. So now you have to lift it up and use your color and the cavity shape in your mouth and everything you can to help this sound in tune. So this was really the, the basics of intonation and outonation. It's two separate exercises based around the same melody and the same kind of um, idea. And it's a great one because it's training so many things at the same time. And also, when you play with the drone and everything matches, it's a lovely feeling. You can almost feel it vibrating through your body. Um, and I just think it's a really interesting way to practice when you're on your own doing private practice. So it's, it's quite a good wee exercise, this, I think. That's very, very reminiscent of a, bag, a bagpipe, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I quite often just improvise on it. I'll show you what I mean. So I'll set the drone to G this time. And, you know, I talk a lot about the first notes I play in the morning. I don't go launching into, you know, like the Eberkin Tour in the morning. I take my time and I very gently allow my body to wake up to the prospect of having to hold this weird metal tube and make it ring. So I quite like to just stick the drone on and the first few notes I play that day are literally just me noodling around but on top of the drone and it's got this kind of usually quite like um what's the word like almost spiritual effect I'll show you what I mean but I just really enjoy doing it and it, of course it's improvised so it's still totally different every day I switch my brain off I'm not bothered about people hearing it or what it sounds like I just noodle around so it goes something like this put that one octave lower just to make life easier in your ears can you hear that yep yeah okay
really simple. I just like having that kind of cushion of sound to sit on top. And, you know, I remember when I was studying, Mike Cox was giving great classes for us and we'd all sit in a circle and we would just play open fifths, you know, going round mm. and round. And it was really great training. And there's something about an open fifth in the morning that I think is like just very beautiful and, and kind of spiritual. And it's very, I can imagine the landscape in front of me, you know, there's something plaintive about it. Um, and I think this is really useful for me and for a lot of people, rather than going launching in with baby flat, baby flat, you know, just to allow your body to become a flute playing body, you know, rather than a human being trying to play the flute. Yeah, trying to work the resonance out first thing, rather yeah. than, yeah, as you say, and the, the, the more and easy listening long to the drone, yeah. when you hear the drone, it allows you to open up your sound because it allows you to open up your ear at the same time. Uh, and you realize quite quickly that less is more. And that's something that took me a long time to realize in my own music making, but I think I'm slowly starting to understand that. Um, and that's such an important chapter, isn't it? Because you can be a brilliant, brilliant player, technically, and have a gorgeous sound, but if your intonation is dicky, it stands yeah. out like a sore thumb. It does, and it's why it came at the end of the book, because in many ways it encapsulates the previous nine chapters and takes little bits of skill that we have learned in the previous nine chapters and adds everything together to finally finish off the the process of becoming a complete flute player if that makes sense now the truth is owning the book is not going to make you a better flute player you know it's it's really analyzing the information in the book and analyzing how it relates to your playing i think moist was the famous one that said this now of course please don't misquote me i'm not comparing myself to moist in any way um but I think, didn't Moy say owning this book, or was it Trevor Y? Owning this book is not going to make you a better flute player. You know, the hours and hours of thoughtful, intelligent, concentrated practice is what's going to make you a better flute player. And having a good set of ears. Yes, and you know, that's something I struggled with for a long time. When I was at college even, you know, we had oral skills class, and I it was a disaster. I could barely sing back the pitch that the guy would play on the piano. Um and I really struggled with it, and I had to learn how to do the same with rhythm. I was always told I have terrible rhythm. Well, how do you get that better? Uh, and you do it by using the metronome over and over and over <laughs> again until you just are so ingrained into the, where the pulse is. And I really think that my my ear and my rhythm have improved because of for years upon years being fundamental about what I practice and how I practice, uh, rather than trying to play all these complicated things i can spend two hours you know playing a bar from a c to an f trying to make it perfect so on the so i get the intonation i get the alternation now on the earlier chapter you had um one that i use all the time when i'm practicing from your book which is the flexibility which ties into yeah. the alternation and intonation can you try and explain um <laughs> best way you can via this audio hey, which chapter is flexibility remind me <laughs> Chapter five is chapter five. Okay, yeah. let me flick to chapter five. Which is a case of uh, and, and you're, what you're doing in your first exercise. You're taking an F, and then you're yes. pitching it up, and then you're taking uh, an F octave above and pitching it down. And it is explains the flute player the breadth of different um, flexibility you have within one note, depending on you, where your lips and your jaw is. Flexibility is, the, I think, probably the hardest thing that we have to do. It's a kind of funny name. Like a lot of people say, what's flexibility? Well, it's really about moving 
between big intervals, but it's in micro detail, if you like. Yeah. The interval may be big, but the detail that you have to uh, adjust to is so minute sometimes. And even just being, uh, you know, the most tiny fraction out is going to cause problems in the overall um, uh, sound. So I, again, I, I said at the beginning when we chatted, you know, I've had quite a lot of problems in my playing when I was younger and really had to deal with them and work through them. And I was lucky to have great teachers who helped me with that. But also a lot of it I did by exploring and um, and finding what worked for me because I talk a lot in the book about there is way more than one way to do these things. And I'm, I'm very much a player and a teacher who says that, um, you know, take what you can from people and, and make it work for you and discard the rest. But make sure you discard it for the right reasons. A lot of people will discard things because it's difficult and challenging. That is the wrong reason. Discard it because you don't think it's going to get you where you want it to take you. Um, and I was amused, if you like, no, amused not the right word, perplexed perhaps by the concept of support. It seemed to me that people, some people seem to think support is the answer to everything. Um, you know, like a kid can be playing completely the wrong notes and there'll be a teacher that goes, well, you're just not supporting. I mean, that's ludicrous. There's obviously a technical finger issue there. And I understand support is a critical in our playing i mean really critical but nobody fully understands what it is and i hear one person saying do it this way another person saying do it this way another person saying well you just have to do this another person saying don't bother about you know there's so many thoughts so i spent a lot of time researching support and really support and flexibility these two chapters are very interlinked in many ways because they both contribute to what the other one's trying to do and the first thing i realized was nobody actually quite knows what's going on with support there is nobody in the world that they i know exactly how we support even the doctors and the physicians and the scientists who are flute players or wind players, they don't even know quite what's going on. All we really know is that uh, it's essential and it makes a big difference. And all we know now for those who are willing to change how they teach and speak is that it's not the diaphragm. This idea of it being the diaphragm is totally incorrect. And we kind of know this, but we don't really, we pretend we don't know it. Do you know what I mean? We yeah. talk about <laughs> yeah. Which I don't like because the way my brain thinks and the way I teach now is I, don't, I want to tell the real truth. You know, I want them to know exactly what's going on and I want to know exactly what's going on because the diaphragm did not work for me. Um, and the reason we talk about the diaphragm, of course, is because you can see it. If you chop someone in half down the middle from head to toe, you could see the diaphragm. But it's completely involuntary. And I know everyone will have heard this before. It's an involuntary muscle. Well, what does that mean? It means it does absolutely nothing on its own. It only does something in response to something else. And that something else is breathing. Um, so the diaphragm will only move when you breathe. You cannot suddenly increase the support from the diaphragm. It will only move as a result of you breathing. And even then, you still have no control of it because it's only doing it because of how you breathe. So actually, the diaphragm has nothing to do with support. What really is support is the intercostal muscles and the little muscles um, between your ribs, and they stretch right around from your belly button, right around to the small of your back, and they go the right way around. Now, this makes much more sense to me because if support is going to help you play high notes, for example, we all know people say, well, support, you know, when you go high. Well, why? Why does the support do that? Gosh, I'm giving you so much information. Please tell me to shut up. No, no, I'm, I'm happily listening. Okay, so the fundamental thing is speed of air and quantity of air and the relationship that they have with the flute. 
So a lot of people talk about air pressure and this and that, and I even hear people saying, I watched someone the other day that said that to play louder, you had to increase the speed of the air. Now, I don't want to criticize people's teaching, but that is incorrect information. And that's not me. That's not my opinion. That is scientifically proven that that is wrong. Speed of air controls pitch, nothing else but pitch. And quantity of air controls volume, nothing else but volume. So if you want to play a high note, you need to play with a faster airstream. If you want to play a low note, it needs to be a slower airstream. Let's say you're playing a note and you're a little bit flat. Well, that's because the airstream, the airspeed for that particular note is too slow. So you need to increase it. It's quite in its most basic form. That's what it is. And the same for quantity of air. If you want to play loud, you play with a lot of air and quietly a little bit of air. And that's why things like high and quiet and low and loud are so difficult for us because to play high and quiet, we need very fast air, but just a little bit of it. And that feel, that's so unnatural, you know, that's so difficult to play. And then, yes, of course, air pressure and all these things come in. But in its most basic form, speed controls pitch, quantity controls volume. So when you're supporting from these, these muscles down in your kind of abdomen area, right around to your back, and you, you um, apply pressure from there, it's kind of like putting your hand around a bottle of water. If you imagine you took the lid off a bottle of water, and you squeeze your hand right round it, the water's going to come out the top. The harder and faster you squeeze, the faster and higher the water is going to shoot. Does that make sense? Absolutely, got it. So it's exactly the same as the port. If your, your muscles down here is your hand around the bottle, essentially. So the support chapter explains this in much more detail, but also gives you some exercises to not just practice it, but to prove it so you really understand it. But it's all very interlinked. So a lot of people talk about support. Support will solve everything. Well, I don't think that's true. There's a huge amount that the lips have to do, a huge amount, and it's a combination of all these things, loads of things that actually give you the end product and the end result. So this flexibility exercise, to come back to that after this long-rounded explanation, but it's all very interlinked, you see, so I wanted to make sure it makes sense. This flexibility exercise, in complete opposite contrast to the support chapter, is isolating in the support chapter, what the um, intercostal muscles do, and in the flexibility chapter, what the lips do. Now, the reality is you will use them both together with a whole other thing, a load of things like the focus and the color and everything to, to get the intonation right, for example. But in the flexibility chapter, it's isolating the lips to train the lip muscles and to train the body to know what to do with the lips in the moment that you need them to help you. So I specifically say, do not do this with support, do this with your lips only. And that's why the arrows are there and the key to explain lips coming forward, lips coming back. And that's why it's so horrible because it, it's, uh, it's tough. It is. But it's an interesting process and some notes are harder than others and you actually have to move the lips a little further forward. So basically it's, it's all octaves. Is it all octaves? Yes, it is. Yes. yes. Um, so, uh, but octaves on different notes require different movement. I can show you this. So, it's not about quality of sound. This is the thing. It's okay to not worry about the quality of sound because all I'm doing here is trying to train myself into being able to be flexible with my lips. So, I mean, I'm giving you the short version. There's a lot of text and videos and all kinds of stuff that I recommend people watch in the book that will really go into detail of how to do this. But if I play the first one, which is a low F to the middle F, all I want to do is use my lips. So it's not going to sound excuse me, it's not going to sound beautiful. It's not actually going to sound that controlled because this is not how you're going to play in real life. But if I try and do it, there'll be this moment where I'll bring the lips forward, keep going forward, keep going forward, keep going forward, and suddenly I will feel that the pitch wants to pop up an octave. Now, the reality is there's a lot more happening here than just your lips, because by bringing your lips forward, it's, it's making the space a little bit smaller, kind of like 
um, like the zoom lens on a camera, you know, if you zoom out, it will extend, but it will get narrower. The aperture will get narrower as it comes out because that's the law of physics, you know, and it's the same with our flute. So as the aperture gets smaller, the speed will increase. And that's a whole other ball game. I'm not even going to get into that, but we're just concentrating on the lips coming forward. And at this point where I feel it's going to pop up, you can, on certain notes, you can kind of almost hover and get both notes at the same time. And once you get to that point, you have such better control over flexibility with your lips because you're actually able to dance around that moment where the pitch is changing. So let me try. I don't know if it'll work on a mess, but I'll give it a go. Here it's like, oh, I can hear, yep. uh, and so this is really the purpose. I'm only doing this with my lips. So the whole exercise is actually to come forward and then back. And actually, uh, you do this with a metronome and you do it uh, on slow tempo and then fast tempo. This exercise was actually not invented by me, it was invented by a friend of mine who's an amazing flute teacher and flute player, Ori Schneor, who lives in Vienna. Um, and, I mean, it's not exactly this exercise, but he he showed me this exercise in a kind of different form. And I was like, this is amazing. Why have I never done anything like this? And I saw great results. So when I wrote the book, I contacted him and said, hey, this exercise has stuck with me. Would you mind if I adapt it and make it into a kind of my own version and include it in the book? And he very kindly said yes. And I met Ori because um, I had heard his playing before and thought he was wonderful. And also I seen a lot of his posts on social media and thought he was a really thoughtful, intelligent flute player. And so I went for a flute lesson and this is only two years ago. So I was already, you know, like I was actually in the middle of concerts between New Zealand and America. And I flew to Vienna to take two days of flute lessons with them. Cause I still do this once a year. I'll go for flute lessons of someone that I really want to learn from. And everyone thinks I'm nuts, but it's the best thing I do. It really helps me get new ideas in my own practice and really progress as a flute player. And so that's where this idea of, isolating the lip movement alone came from. I've never quite heard it like this. Um, and so in the book, it's just separating all these fundamental things in your playing, because if you can practice it independently, it's much easier than when you're just playing long tones, trying to figure out what on earth is going on. So, of course, these exercises are, are fairly substantial and long in the book. I'm just playing one bar out of probably about 50 bars. Uh, and then, as well, the book is written in a way that you can take these and design them into your own practice and your own playing. You don't necessarily have to have it in front of you on the stand. Once you get the concept, you pretty much are good to go. Stephen, you know, we could talk for hours on this, couldn't we? We could. We could. I've given it a lot of thought. Sorry. Once you start me off, I'm just going to go. So everybody, I can't recommend this book enough. It's called The Flute Gym. And it's a manual for flute players of all levels. And that's the key, all levels. Wanting to become stronger, fitter and faster on their instrument. And it covers the 10 fundamental workouts that we already spoke about. And I think you just Google it and it'll come up, won't it, Stephen? Yeah, it's now, the distribution is now in um, Just Flutes in London. So they're kind of in control of it. And, you know, I've had a great working relationship with them for many, many years now. So I really trust them. And they look after me as an author and as a flute player in that respect. And so now through Just Flutes, it's also available in um, uh, Flute World in America and also Syrinx Music in Australia. So it's now kind of, I think it's now been delivered to about 60 countries. 
Um, I'm not sure if the other London flute shops have it yet or not. You can no longer get it through my website direct, but it does have all the links to uh, where you can buy it. So you go on my website, click on the Flute Gym page, and it'll say purchase in America, purchase in Asia, purchase in Europe, Australia, and you click the button, and it will take you to the dealer, the store, the shop that serves that area, um, which is a much nicer way for me to deal with it, and I can kind of get on with flute playing rather than dealing with the book because the first two months of the book coming out, it was almost my full-time job, and I just can't do that anymore. So... Uh, just flutes are much better and much faster at it than I am. Well, as I as I said, it's a it's a wonderful book, and it's one that, as you said, you can dip in, dip out, or you can use it as a, a part of your daily routine. It's really up to you, and that's very makes it very very different to other tutors out there. I think so, and also I know we spoke last time about this, the QR codes make a diff- difference. Oh, you know, yeah. Every chapter has two QR codes that you scan on your phone, and it automatically takes you to a video one of me like talking about it like i've just done giving kind of almost like a flute lesson on it the other just a straight demonstration of me playing the exercise so you have a kind of concept of what to aim for or how someone else might play it um so it is quite unusual it's it's quite unique in that respect and also my favorite thing is it's full color and it's spiral bound so it sits perfectly flat on your music stand (laughs) all the fine it was a big deal for me a big deal for me to get that because nobody else believed in that and i'm so glad that we made a color and i'm so glad we put the spiral binding on it yeah, well, it is a real pain when you get a sheet music book, certainly a study book, and you can't, you have to break the spine. Yeah, and so, it's you know, a hefty book, you know, it's 108 pages, so you'd almost have to stand on it to, to bend it around, you know, or you'd be trying to play one page and it's flicking to the other. So spiral binding was like a no-brainer to me, but of course, you know, the business side of things, people, it's a bit more expensive to, to produce, so people weren't very happy about this. But I fought and I fought and I fought. Same with the colour coding. Every chapter is colour coded. Just because no one else does that, everything's in black and white. And I think it looks pretty. So they eventually agreed with me. And yes, everyone makes less money per copy, but I think it's a product that I'm really proud of as a result. And so you should be. And Thank you. It's, you know, it's always lovely to catch up with you. And uh, Always a pleasure. And hopefully we'll be able to catch up for a coffee in the not-too-distant, young sir. I hope so. I'm I'm going insane. Like as someone who lives on their own, I need human contact. Now you know it's tough. Yeah, you've uh, Sally's moved up, hasn't she? So yeah, Sally's Sally's uh, moved over. She's taken a year sabbatical from Cape Town Phil because uh, her boyfriend lives up the road from me. Um, who and so they've moved in together. So it's great. So we meet up every now and then and have like socially distanced duets and stuff. Yeah, I did see uh, that. That's quite funny, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> but actually, I'm seeing her tomorrow. We're going to go for coffee and then sight read some. Crazy hard duets that neither of us will be able to play properly. <laughs> and that was more than that was a t- more than two meters. That was about three. Well, the truth distance. is, we we stood a little closer than that. And then Sally was like, "Oh, let's record a little bit." And I said, "Oh, everyone will go crazy. They'll think we're being terrible people." So we we deliberately moved really far back <laughs> just so nobody moaned that. <laughs> but you know, it changed everything in our playing. It was really hard to to keep together when we were so far apart. I was trying to work out who was playing first and who was playing second, actually. Well, do you know what's funny about the video is I look like five times taller than Sally you because do. I'm closer to the camera, but it's not true. Like, I'm quite small uh, in terms of height. So we were laughing about how funny it looks in the camera. But she's, I mean, Sally's an amazing musician. She's a wizard. You know, like, I have to really, she keeps me on my toes when we play duet. Uh, well, sir, thank you once again for taking, do you know, we've been going for an hour. So oh, this, sorry, I told you AP, I can talk way too long. No, no. Well, I mean, there's some people that say podcasts should be shorter, but in my view, people can chunk a podcast and why cut it off Absolutely. just because of time? 
Well, I listen to all of them and I'm always there the whole time. Just like I go for a walk or a run or something and I just listen to it the whole time. And I usually wish it went on a bit longer because what you guys talk about is always quite fascinating to me. Uh, well, thank you, Steve. And I said, you're back by popular demand. So, uh, Thank you. Always a pleasure. Always very flattered to be here. Uh, well, thank you. And wishing you a return to normality as soon as thank possible. Not only, f- not only for your income but for your sanity as a musician. And okay. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm more worried about is my sanity. Yeah, well, I have been questioning that over the last few weeks, actually. <laughs> you have been uh, <laughs> you have been bordering on the insane. Um, well, wait to see what's to come. Did you see my church service? <laughs> no, uh, yes, I did. Or was that when you were pretending to be a monk? Yeah, well, it's just all book promotions. And we, <laughs> we come up with some crazy things. But there's two really funny ones coming up that people are going to think we've totally lost the plot. But um, it's good for business. You know, people laugh at them and like them and it encourages the book to, to get even more better known. Well, that's that's the key. That's the key. If you want to promote something, just don't do it normally. Just go off Well, pace. it's not really my thing. You know, I, I'm a bit like you in this respect. I just, I'm not very good at the traditional no. way. You know, like, and so I always come, and you know, like the monk thing happened because I was looking through a drawer and I found this old shoe bag. And I was like, oh, and for some reason I stuck it on my head for no reason at all as I was searching through this drawer. And then I was like, oh, I look like clergy. And then before you know it, I'm dressed up as like a priest, like giving a service, reading from the flute gym. You know, like I have no idea how these things happen. I honestly think lockdown has not done good things for my right, mind. Well, final question for you. And it's me owning up to something I'm, I'm actually not embarrassed about. But if you go into somebody's house and you see a tea cosy on the side, do you put it on your head? <laughs> Because <laughs> I do. No, I but I also, I'm not sure if I've ever seen a tea cozy in someone's house. But no, I don't think I would be brave enough to do that. I, I, it must be me that has the problem. If I see a tea cozy, I've just got to try and put it on my head. And how do they react? Oh, with they, they just look at me and think, "Oh my goodness, who's walking in? Who's walked in?" Um, no, I don't know. It's this thing. It's if I see a tea cozy. And they're sort of, they've got that funny shape, although you can get woolen ones, which are quite interesting. And I just have to go and try and stick it on my head. A bit weird. But, you know, this doesn't surprise me because, JP, you're one of these people in the world that walks in a room and everybody wants to talk to and you kind of light up the room <laughs> and everybody knows you. So I think you just have to do you because everybody likes it that way. I, I don't take myself seriously, which is the best way. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you once again. And, uh, yeah, let's catch up soon. Absolutely. Thank you once again to Stephen and to you all for listening. If you have any questions or flute players you'd like to come on the show, then give us a shout on flutepodcasts at gmail.com or via our social media channels, which is TJ Flutes on Instagram, Flute and Claire Flute on Twitter, and Talking Flutes on Facebook. Wishing you a wonderfully musical week ahead, and may your top C be especially in tune. Goodbye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.